Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. This is a special live recording that was conducted for light employees and actually holds the record for the fastest turnaround time. This episode was recorded on March 30th, 2022, between 8 and 9 a.m. Pacific time, and you will be listening to this in less than 24 hours from when we finished recording. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to a special live recording of Spotlight On. I think you all should know me by now, but I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. This week, we are shining the spotlight on one of our own, Light's Director of Concierge Services, Cynthia Parsons. To fully appreciate this discussion, you might want to know what a concierge servicer does. Think of a scenario where you might be knocking on the door and waiting outside after a show to meet your favorite artist. Think about walking up to the velvet rope saying just the right few words, and being let right in. Think about guest lists, VIP access, going behind the scenes. These are all the kinds of experiences that Cynthia has been delivering to fans of music, sports, and other forms of live entertainment for many, many years. There's no school for this job, but Cynthia learned about this part of our business from a pioneer in providing insider access to tickets, our shared friend and mentor, Shelly Lazar, who we'll talk about a little bit more a little bit later in our conversation. Cynthia has also worked in artist management for the late, great Bill Graham's management company, and just last week was named one of Polestar's 2022 Women of Live, an honor she shares with high-powered agents, managers, promoters, and as of last year's honorees, even a U.S. Senator, Amy Klobuchar. So we're going to unpack all of this and a whole lot more. So, Cynthia, good morning. How are you? Fine. All right, so we have to we have to do our thing, and we have to start at the very beginning. Where are you from? I am a native Californian. I actually was born in San Francisco, grew up in the Bay Area in San Mateo County on the peninsula, and I lived here pretty much all of my life. A majority of it in San Francisco, and a little part time stint in Utah, but pretty much California. And what role, if any, did music play for you growing up or in your childhood or as a young adult? Like, is music a thing for you or is it your business? Music has always been a thing for me. I I, I feel like I grew up with parents that had music playing in the house all the time, whether it be on the record player or the radio or there was always music. They would entertain quite a bit, so they'd have friends over. And so I was exposed to a lot of different music growing up with my parents. And then in my teen years, I, I just constantly listened to music. It, it, it's actually a therapy for me, actually. And uh, it still is to this day. So I've, I've always derived a lot of different emotions from music too. Did you grow up going to shows or when did you have your first live experiences? My first live experience, I think, was going back now, uh, A Day on the Green in Oakland, California which probably was a precursor to our festival business. I, I was young. I, I don't know why my parents let me go, 
but they did a lot. And I, my friends and I, we'd all get up at the crack of dawn and, you know, get out there and get in line. And so we could get a front spot at the, at the Coliseum. And they always had great acts, many that are still around today, like the Eagles and the Doobie Brothers and Fleetwood Mac. I mean, all, all kinds of artists. Just so we don't make any assumptions, could you tell people a little bit about what Day in the Green was? Day on the Green was produced by Bill Graham. I believe they had one every year. I forget what year that they actually stopped, but it went, I think it went through the late 90s, at least 2000s, maybe. But there, it was just, it was like a festival type of environment. And they just, they had several great acts on, on the stage throughout the day. And it was just, I, I feel like that was one of my first real big concert experiences. Was it a single day event or was it a weekend? I remember it as a single day event. I only went yeah. a, a single day. One was enough? It was enough. Yes, it was. <laughs> and where was it? Was it outside or I guess? It was out at Oakland, uh, Oakland Stadium. Wow. What, a, what an environment for a show. It was. It was. Yeah. I mean, that's what really stands out of my, my first show experiences. It was always something everybody in the Bay Area looked forward to. So back then, when you were going to down the green... How did you get tickets? Ah, uh, just the way everybody else did, I guess. Which was how? How did people get tickets in the old days? Good question. Did you sleep out? Did you stand in line? Did you go to you know the Bass Ticket Outlet? How did it work? You know, uh, sometimes people got tickets through Bass. I, I, sometimes we got them at the venue. I don't know. That's a. I don't quite recall. I just remember getting them somehow, and it wasn't too difficult. I remember sleeping out a lot on the sidewalk in New Haven. There was a little Ticketron booth, like outlet thing. And then it moved inside to one of the record stores. And then up in Hartford, there was an early Ticketmaster outlet where we would sleep in the parking garage. And then they would come wake us up at some point, like late night, early morning and get everybody in line. And, you know, the shenanigans would start with wristbands or numbers or people paying people for a place in line. Yeah, too much, too much time of my early adult life spent doing that. I mean, I, I guess maybe we did get them in line, too, because we, we really would get up at the crack of dawn to get out there. But there was also Tower Records in the Bay Area where you could buy tickets as well. They had the little machine in the back of the, of the shop. Right. That was always good to know somebody who worked there because they could print out tickets and put them in the drawer. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so when did you start thinking about working in music and did you have some kind of alternative career path in mind like what did, what did you think you were going to do when you were a kid or a young adult or what did you want to do I never had a defined career path I was always kind of searching to see what what my career path was going to be and I I started out in banking actually and I was on track for a training program there but I started out as an executive assistant there and was going to go on the training program and decided that I didn't think banking was my thing. I then decided that I wanted to be in the fashion industry so I got into the fashion industry for several years and I loved that but there were some changes at the the company that I worked for. So I really thought what 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 do I want to do? What do I love to, you know, and music was always the thing that I loved the most. So, of course, Bill Graham, the concert promoter in the Bay Area, was the biggest, you know, the only place that I wanted to work in, in the business. So I just blindly sent in a resume, and that's how I got into the music business. Didn't know anything other than I loved music. 
I have this perception, or I guess maybe not so much anymore, but early on that I guess a, a variation on the way you just said it, which was all roads led to Bill Graham. If you were in the greater Bay Area working in music and there might have been like, you know, maybe some small competitors doing things out of the colleges or whatever. But if anything got to be of any notoriety or success, somehow Bill stepped in and <laughs> became part of his his domain. And if you wanted to work in music, eventually you ended up on the other side of the desk from him looking for a job. So you started Bill Graham Management. What was the process of getting hired there? I, I, I think that's another perception I have is that even though Bill Graham's organization got to be fairly big and far flung in terms of the things he had his hands in, that he was involved in a lot of it. And I just wonder, like, you know, did, did Bill interview you or like how, how did it work there? How, how involved was he? How much of a presence did you feel of Bill Graham? I wasn't interviewed by Bill at first. I went through several interviews, though through the HR person at first. That was the first step. Then I went through another person there. And then I then I got to the management division, which was where the job opening was. And I interviewed with both of them. There, it, it was over a course of different dates that I got called back for another interview. But I remember the first interview, I thought, I'm not going to get a job here. I just, you know, I, I was in my fashion suit and I did Everyone was sitting at their desk with their T-shirts, and, and I thought, oh, I felt like a fish out of water. I thought, okay, well, this, you know, this isn't going to go very far. But I made it past that interview, and then the second interview, and then when I got to management, I remember one of the, the co-heads of the management department got up and had to go move his car during the interview. So I thought, oh, that's another sign. I'm, I'm not going to get this job. <laughs> so I, I did go through a series of interviews, and then I... I, I got the job, which surprised me because I remember they had someone in the position at the time that was temporary, and I think that they wanted the job. So I, I really thought that they were just doing the outreach to see. But again, with no experience, I, I wasn't expecting anything, and I, I was surprised when I got the job and thrilled, of course. So. Do you have any insight as to why they hired you or what they saw, or did you ever get feedback as to what made them pick you? Not Really, I, I think that probably my previous work experience, being an executive assistant and, you know, learning different things in different industries, you know, a lot of it was transferable into what, what they needed. When you get there, what's the environment like? Is it orderly and business-like? Is it chaotic and crazy? Like, what, what's, what's a day in the life of working in music for someone who at that point was already an icon, what kind of organization was it? It was amazing, actually. I, I, I feel like it, it would be hard to replicate that kind of environment that we all experienced. And I came in later, so there were a lot of people there that had been with Bill from day one for, for many, many years prior to my joining the company. So I was the newbie, but it was like a family. I mean, a real close family. It was orderly. It was organized. You know, there were a few outbursts every now and then. You could hear Bill's bellowing voice from the back office. I was on a different area than he was, but but it, it was a comfortable office. You know, we all supported each other and we had different departments there. And it, it was it was really a truly special environment, I have to say. Where are some of your colleagues now? Like who are some of the people you came up with in that organization? 
Well, I was there for quite a while, always in the artist management division. And unfortunately, recently, several of them passed away. Three of three of well, two co-heads passed away within within a couple of weeks of each other. I think it was just last year. And then another person passed away. So that, you know, kind of makes me sad to to think that a, a good portion of the management employees are no longer there for one reason or another. But there are still a lot of people that are scattered around in the industry that came out of the Bill Graham family. Some people might have gotten into a different area than what they did at Bill Graham, but mm-hmm. a lot of them are still in the industry or involved. The Bill Graham Foundation, keeping Bill's legacy alive through that, through other, you know, maybe working on their own projects. Another Planet is a company that was started by Greg Perloff and Sherry Wasserman, and a lot of people are there. So people are still going. At that point in his arc, what was Bill doing? Was Bill Graham Management just his name on the door and artists wanted to be close to that name? Or was Bill involved in the artist management? Was, was he primarily promoting? Like, what was, what was Bill Graham doing at that point when you were there? I feel like Bill was involved with everything. Promoting certainly management. I mean, a lot of the management was handled by the you know the day to day and primary managers, but but he was involved in everything there really, uh, and he had a lot of other interests too. I mean, he did a lot of benefits, and you know he's very philanthropic, and so he he was involved with a lot of benefits like Live Aid, Amnesty International, and many before I, I got there. But but those were two main ones, and so he was very involved with a lot of that. So he actually started the first festivals type large scale events in Eastern Europe too. So he was more on the world stage, I think, by the time I got there. And then he had other loves. He was an actor too. He was in some movies. I remember we all went to the, I think it was the Fillmore. No, maybe I think it was the Warfield, the Warfield. He was in a movie and uh, he was in the doors. Yes, that was that was the movie that was being filmed there, a scene there. So we got to sit in as the audience as part of the film. Yeah. Did you get a SAG card? Did you get residuals? No, I didn't get one. No, I didn't have a, no. I didn't have oh. a speaking part. I just clapped, I think. <laughs> you needed better representation. So what, what acts were you working with when you, were at, when you were at Bill Graham Manager? There were quite a few. We worked with Joe Satriani, who you interviewed on your, one of your podcasts, which was a great interview. Neville Brothers, Aaron Neville, we had Santana, Any Money, we managed Train for a while. And there were, were a lot of other artists that we work with. Well, let me ask you this. Was there a guiding aesthetic or philosophy? Was it like you're looking for, you know, road dogs who you knew could go out and tour? Or, you know, was there some management companies have a very specific sort of thing they look for and then others it's just whoever you can sign. And I wonder if, if you were aware of at the time, any, any sort of guiding principle around the type of artists you'd work with that, that the, that the company would sign. Well, I can't say prior to my being there, there were a lot of well-known artists already established that were on the roster. And then back then we would go listen to music bands that, that maybe had some buzz that were playing a local club or club somewhere or, you know, demos would be sent in to management to listen to. And 
if someone had sent in a demo, if a copy or someone, they'd go see them play. I remember once you know, my my boss, someone had sent in a demo for Train, and he asked me to go listen to this band, and it was on a Saturday night, and I had plans, and oh gosh, I have to go to this little club in San Francisco, and and I, I went to the club and I was blown away by this artist. So I think a lot of it came from demos going, you know, A&R people going to listen to different music in different places. So really sort of street level, like looking for talent. Right. Yeah. So you were there when Bill passed away. I was. Yes. Yeah. I was there for about four years while Bill was alive. So yeah, he passed away in 1991. What was being with the organization at that time like? Well, it was traumatic when he passed away. I remember the evening like it was yesterday. It was very stormy, and and he had gone to a show at the Concord Pavilion. It was Huey Lewis in the news, and he was coming back in a helicopter, and the helicopter uh, crashed. And I remember getting a call. It, It was on a Saturday, I believe, and I remember getting a call early in the morning to come to the office that Bill had passed away. And so I just remember going to the office and it was almost like a state of shock and disbelief that because he was so alive and so vibrant and it was just hard to believe that he really was not with us anymore. So, but everyone just gathered around and persevered and continued on the legacy of of, of Bill. I, I always wondered how... Because I because he's so identified as sort of, you know, you know, his name's on the door. How long did it take for everybody to get into the mode of like, for lack of a better way to say it, like the show goes on and you must have had artists that were working and people on tour and tickets that were on sale for shows like you had to get back to work. And I wonder how how did the organization metabolize that and, and get back up and running quickly, I I would assume, but also then planning the tribute show in Golden Gate. Like, could you take us through that a little bit? Like what, what happened mechanically? Like, did you, did you close for a week or did everybody come to work the next day? I feel like everyone just hunkered down and, and went to work still to just knowing that that's what Bill would want. And the show was not going to stop or be paused. That's, that was my recollection of it. And you're right, there was a a huge, massive concert in Golden Gate Park, a memorial concert for Bill that they started planning, and it was huge. I think there was probably between 300 to 500,000 people at that concert. Many of the artists that, that Bill worked with performed there, and it was massive. It was called Love, Laughter, and Music. So I think a lot of the energy went into that as well. It, It was Difficult because there were two people in the helicopter as well that passed away. So there were several different memorials for all of them. So there was definitely a grieving period, but the show still had to go on. So people did. persevered. Yeah. Yeah. And so you stayed there for a period of time longer. But I wonder at what point did Shelly Lazar come into your life? Shelly came into my life, I believe. The year Bill died, which was 1991, Bill brought her out from New York. She worked for the concert promoter there, Ron Ron Delsner. She had known Bill, and Bill brought her out to be vice president of artist relations. 
And so Shelly did many things there. She did that. She did special events. And she was just a force there at Bill Graham and did so many things. So he brought her out. And that's how I met met Shelly. Even though we were in different divisions, we, we became friendly. And I mean, everyone loves Shelly. So it's hard not to become friendly with her. But we became close there. And then she also did her ticketing which she was already doing for a certain artist and brought that in-house too. She continued to do that. So she did a lot of things. Well, maybe between the two of us, we could give everybody like the capsule summary of who she was. So I'll, I'll tell you my version of what I know, and then you can tell me where I'm wrong or you could fill in things that um, are blind spots for me. So, you know, after getting multiple versions of the story from her over the years, my understanding was she grew up in Brooklyn and with sort of mid-century left-leaning parents immersed in sort of the, the the politics of the left back then, you know, sort of somewhere on the spectrum of like socialism, communism, a lot of like that kind of fun talk in their house and around interesting characters, which as she became a young adult evolved into maybe the folk scene and the early music rock scene. But she became a school teacher and she had a lot of fun stories about that. But always had this moonlighting job, broadly speaking, I guess it wouldn't have been called ticketing back then, but in ticketing and like guest list management and working at the Fillmore. And it was never clear to me exactly how all that came together. But that was essentially her entree into the music world and working with people on the business side and on the artist side, sort of like managing access. A record label might call the Fillmore and say, we need X number of executives to come down and Shelly would deal with the guest list management or, or what have you. An artist might say, hey, we're coming to New York. We need to let my cousins and my aunts and uncles from Staten Island in and Shelly would deal with that. And that, that sort of became what she did for a period of time and ultimately evolved into sort of institutionalizing that role in a concert promoter's office or world and expanded it really into other things, right? Like I guess what we might think of as like guest services and, and, and sort of amenities and security, right? Yeah, no, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was a school teacher. And I, I think she always had that element of her personality uh, being a school teacher. You could just learn so many things from her. And she, in New York, working for Ron Delsner and Delsner Presents, she did so many things there, you know, she, from catering to the door. I mean, she learned every aspect of it and dealing with guests. And that was her, her forte in knowing how to take care of the artists and the fans and just creating a a whole business of guest relations for, for artists and events. She was a pioneer of the VIP programs that many artists have today. She sort of created the friends and family type of business that that artists use today because they all have their own guest list that they have to, you know, manage. And she had some of the biggest acts in the world that that she would handle. And of course, that was big business because there are a lot of tickets and, you know, it's, it's a large artist and well-known artist. And so it was a business that she really created and established in our industry today. The, the litany or the roll call of events things like Live Aid or Stones Tours, McCartney, some of the the benefit tours and the the Arms Tour, like what really iconic, 
iconic, important sort of historical. If you care about rock music and you care about the live business, she shows up and she she's there, you know, doing her thing behind the scenes. And what, what was always amazing to watch with Shelly was, you know, you said a minute ago, the way she could work with the artist and the fan. You know, she she understood, you know, with just like the right amount of jaded and cynicism or what I would call like realism, what was important to the artist, whether that was comfort or money or lack of stress or whatever it was. She knew how to identify that and and be direct with the artist about it in ways when maybe other people would dance around it um, or be precious about it. She didn't sort of let them hide behind any pretense. If she knew the artist was money motivated, she would just talk to them in dollars and and not pretend that 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 wasn't what it was about. But if you were a fan and you encountered her, she had this bizarre ability to just expand the mythology of rock and roll, you know, to give you an experience of like, come with me. And all of a sudden you're in the depths of an arena and you're with an artist or you're with the pyro guy or I don't think I've ever been anywhere on the planet with her, anywhere near an event where she didn't know like everybody from the ushers to the lighting guys to the promoters. I mean, I've been at shows with her where the most bizarre people would be there and they would know her and they would, you know, whether it's an artist or an actor or a business person, like really stunning. And her, her comfort when dealing with people. You know, she had her bravado and her exterior, and it was always fun to talk to her in her in her sort of offstage moments and 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 really sort of get a feel for her vulnerability and who she was. But she was good. And watching her operate was like it was a masterclass. Oh, it was. That's what I I said. She she was always a teacher. I mean, you could learn so much from her in life and business, and of course the the industry. But I don't think I ever knew anybody that knew as many people as. Shelley Lazar did all over the world. It, it was amazing to me that that everyone knew of her. And she did so many other things other than major events. You know, she did um, the Pope was at Yankee Stadium and she handled that event. She's done uh, guest list for funerals for some major artists. Uh, she's, you know, she's just an amazing people person and people feel a comfort level with her, whether it be the artist. And she could. She could talk to any artist. She had a lot of wonderful relationships with artists, too, that really respected her and, and trusted her decision. And, and the fans, as you said, she made every fan feel like they were getting a, a special experience. And that always amazed me. And to this day, I still actually it's been three years since she passed away this week. And to this day, people I talk to say, gosh, I miss her so much because she was just a force. If you didn't know her, you, you can't really quite understand how unique and special she was to so many people. She touched so many lives in so many ways that people will never forget. Neglect to mention one of the bawdiest characters ever. Like if you wanted a good dirty story, <laughs> she had great stories. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. I always wonder, like, oh, how would she survive in the environment today where you can't really say those things? <laughs> but no one was offended. That's the thing. People, well, I, I didn't think so. I mean, maybe maybe one or two people were. But, but everyone got a kick out of it. She'd just say the most outrageous things sometimes. But she, she had such a sense of humor, too. I have a theory about that, though. And I think it's, I think it's because either she was always part of the punchline 
or there was never a meanness. There was never a victim in her stories, or there was seldom a victim in her stories. And if there was somebody that the joke was on, it was usually the most powerful person. It was taking the piss out of an artist or somebody was being pretentious and she had a funny story about how they were undermined or, you know, not for, you know, like stories about fire marshals and things like that. Oh, you know, yeah. anybody, anybody who was too big for their britches was fair target, but it was not, it was never about like punching down, you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, she could have been a, she could have had a, a comedy tour on her own. I think she would tell stories and I'd be having a bad day and I would go into her office and say, can, can you tell me that story again? The way she could tell stories. I couldn't even tell a story that she told me and have it come off the same way. She was a great storyteller, truly an entertainer in her own right. So how did you get sucked into her world? Well, I I had been in artist management for about 13 years, and I, I decided it was time for me to kind of move on to something else. SFX had bought up a lot of the regional promoters, and then SFX became Clear Channel, which eventually morphed into what Live Nation is today. So I was there up until it became a Clear Channel company. And but I, you know, I had done everything I felt that I I, I learned so much in management. The the people I work with there just let me go and do all kinds of things that I never would have thought I that I had no knowledge of either. I just had to get in there and learn. Um, you know, we started a record label. I have to do publishing things. Um, you know, I'd review contracts or set up interviews for artists and things like that. I had they they just let me do so many things there. And I got to the point where I, I feel like I felt like I had experienced, you know, everything I wanted to learn and do there. And it was time for me to move on. So I went to work for a startup company briefly, maybe for a year and a half, two years. And that ended. I reached out to Shelly, who had started her own company in 2002, doing VIP ticketing and then the VIP packages. Eventually, she had an opening, so I, I joined her company, which was eye-opening because honestly, I mean, I dabbled in tickets. We had a box office in our office at Bill Graham, but I did wasn't behind each ticket, and you know, I, I have no clue what went into each ticket. It was really eye-opening. Yeah, it's a lot of work, so I had to learn a lot about ticketing. Of course, she's the master, but she was in Japan actually at the time that I joined the company. So she was she was on tour. So I didn't even see her for months. So I, I did kind of have to dig in and the colleagues that were there helped me learn a lot of things that I did not know about ticketing, but it was great. And then um, we decided we wanted to start the concierge division in Shelley's company because people would come to us, even though they weren't tours that are that we worked on, people would come to us for tickets of all kinds, just can you get tickets for this? So it became more and more clear that that was a service that we wanted to offer as well. This is where several strands start to come together. But before I get into that, what I, something I'd like to know is you talked about all the things that go into a ticket and all the work and all the things you didn't know. Are there any examples you could point to of something where, where it was eye-opening about the way ticketing worked or something that was just either surprising or a revelation or just more than what you thought it was? It was just much more than what I thought it was. Just, you know, looking at a report was like a strange thing. Oh, like, how do you read this thing? And I think the importance that every ticket is 
money. And it's important. You have to be very detail-oriented. It, it was just a lot of things that you don't really think about when you're buying tickets or you're going to a show unless you're in the ticketing business. And I, and I have to say, not working in a box office, I didn't work in a box office uh, other than maybe for a show manning the window, but as, as a, a box office manager or, or professional, I have a lot of respect for all of the ticketing people, I, either at promoter for promoters or box offices. It's truly a job that is quite intense, I think. It's crazy when you're in the box office the night of an event and things are going well and like people are coming up, they're getting their stuff, they're getting in, things are going well and it feels really good and you feel that momentum. But every problem that happens feels like it's the worst thing in the world because the the person on the other side of the window, like that's their night out and they spent money and maybe they got a babysitter or they paid a lot of money for parking or like they bring, there's so much. I just know even as a fan and consumer, every time I walk up to a will call window, I'm filled with dread. Like what's going to happen? My tickets aren't going to be there or like, what am I going to do? Oh my God, I'm going to have to call somebody and bother them at night. Like it's the worst feeling coupled with the best feeling when it goes well. It's, it's a really, really bizarre dynamic. And to be on the other side of that servicing that, that combination of like exhilaration and absolute like morbid feeling, it's, it's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. It's true because I can arrange a ticket for somebody, but you're dependent on other people too. And there's a lot going on in a box office. So things can go awry. But they're always fixable, usually. And it's amazing the problem solving that goes into ticketing as well. I mean, you're always problem solving. Just to quickly talk about a little bit of the mechanics. So, and using sort of your time with, with Shelly's organization as the example, what, did, what does friends and family ticketing mean in the context of, say, an artist or a music tour? Well, it means that, you know, every artist has their guests that, that want tickets, just like every other ticket buyer out there. They want to go see the show. So friends and family is a way to sell tickets to people that are possibly related to the artist or business associates, things like that. Or, I mean, it, it ranges of, of who gets to a friends and family ticket. So it's buying a ticket through a hole that the artist places for what they think they'll need. And, you know, there's other details that go into that. And then some artists have comp tickets that, that need managing as well. It's a lot of work that goes into friends and family that, that the artist or the event has to take care of. And, you know, what Shelley started was basically taking all those details and making it a business to make life of an artist or an event much easier for, for that artist or show or event. So essentially, if, if, I'm, if I'm the artist manager of, say, an arena-level artist and they're going out on tour, as soon as the tour is announced, people start calling me, cousins and friends and all kinds of people saying, hey, can I get two tickets to St. Louis or I want to bring the family out to Anaheim. And pre-Shelley or pre-Shelley sort of innovation, managers and agents were fielding all those calls and having to worry about well, this person pays, this person doesn't pay, this person gets to sit with this person, this person shouldn't sit anywhere near that person. Who gets the better ticket? Is that the grandfather or the high school sweetheart? And so somehow Shelly took not only the management of that, like the mechanics of, hey, when they call your office, just tell them to call me. 
but then somehow worked with the artist team to really sort of understand at an intuitive level, like what the rules were, right? Like how to decide. I mean, I can remember sitting with her in, in ticket offices and her just knowing like, oh, don't put that person next to that person. Or, you know, don't, they, they, they don't need to see each other, put them at opposite ends of the row. So they come in from different sides of the building, like really, you know, I, again, I guess like broadly speaking, like fan experience stuff. That was a big part of it too, that, you know, for many of the artists that she handled, she, she knew the personality she knew, she just knew where people should be sitting and how to determine that and, you know, who should sit with whom. And it was, it was really amazing that she really got involved with all the personalities of, of all the people. And she just instinctively knew where people should sit. Yeah. I remember working with her on a tour. This is not, this is only slightly related. It was before you came on board for the concierge stuff and she was doing the VIP packages and she was pitching an artist and the two are the two main artists in the group were sort of hemming and hawing like, Oh, we don't know if we want to do this. It's kind of expensive for the fans. And the manager was talking about how the two guys really, they don't, they, they're, they're fine as long as they don't have to spend too much time together. And so we all broke for lunch or whatever it was. And Shelly came back in in the afternoon and she said, if you do this deal with me, they could each have, their, it would pay for them each to have their own bus. <laughs> <laughs> and, she, and by three o'clock, the deal was done. Oh my God. <laughs> so, and, and you know, that was when she, you know, she liked to use the bill as a look. It's not about the money. It's about the money. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So you, you've told us what you've told us what, Friends and family is it's essentially a service that makes life better and easier for artists and artist management to, to allocate who gets tickets to come see them from their insiders, basically. What's concierge then? How's that different? Well, concierge is just a different element of, of taking care of somebody who wants a ticket. You know, the experience can be frustrating sometimes when you're trying to compete with an on-sale or a pre-sale and trying to get the tickets that you want or need. You know, if you know somebody that you can reach out to that 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 has access to great tickets, you're going to want to call that person. You might have had a bad experience. You didn't get what you wanted to purchase, uh, which you see a lot. And it, it, I, I think that a lot of people appreciate having that service if if they choose to do get a ticket that way. So it just makes life easier for people. And as I said, it started out actually at Shelly's company, we had an executive ticket club, but where people would have a membership and you could get so many tickets, but then it, it, it changed. And, and, you know, there, I mean, there's so many different requests that people have that it's, it's just an insider way to, to help people with their ticket buying. What's the most bizarre ticket request you've gotten and, or have been able to fulfill? You know, there's concerts, there's sporting events. I, I would imagine like, you know, Wimbledon comes or the Super Bowl comes and people ask questions around that. Or let me ask it a different way. Is there a, is there a request you didn't think you were going to be able to fulfill that you were able to? There's always one of those, LP. How do you do it? Well, I just seek out people that I, I think might be able to help with that particular ticket request. You know, you're so cagey. <laughs> <laughs> I, just have to, I just have to figure out who who the best contacts are to go get that particular ticket. As far as the most difficult or the oddest requests, I, I don't know. There's been so many requests over the years 
honestly, sometimes I don't even know who the band is. And I, you know, I, I, I Google them and I search and I think, oh, you know, and I, I learn about new music that way. Sometimes I tend to listen to the same music all the time, but so, I mean, there are artists I, and I've never heard it before. And it's interesting because I can kind of tell by people asking for this particular artist that I've never heard of, like, oh, this person is going, and they, they always tend to be an artist or a band that, that becomes very popular. Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah. really interesting. All right. I guess a variation on that question then is, is there like a white whale? Is there, is there something you get asked for or that you dread getting asked for because tickets are impossible to get? Or is there no such creature? There's always something. Well, I think there's always a way to get a ticket. It's just the means of getting it. I, I would say Super Bowl is not the easiest, but there's all there's always a way to get a ticket. Yeah, that's the other Shelleyism, which was there's no such thing as sold out. What's your role and what goes on with with the Bill Graham Foundation? Like what's what's the work there that's done in Bill's name? It was founded in 2009, I think, and, and it's a lot of Bill Graham employees uh, on the board that are keeping the legacy of Bill Graham alive through, you know, making grants to music companies, or I shouldn't say companies, but people who apply for grants that that really could use the money that that Bill had a, a passion for. A lot of music organizations apply for a grant for Bill Graham. We actually organize a reunion of Bill Graham employees. We hold a benefit show around his birthday. And since he was so involved in benefits and things like that, keeping those organizations that we feel that would be important to him. That was such a big part of the San Francisco music scene all the way back to the early shows he produced. All of the artists and the business people were were very much about the, the free show in the park or the benefit when someone was sick or injured or whatever the cause and need was. The Bay Area music tradition is steeped in in those types of events. Well, you okay? We made it. We did it. We're at the other end. Great. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. We forgot that wasn't too bad. Talk about Polestar. You're like you're you're the you're a woman of lives. That's oh, neat. I know. I honestly I was humbled and honored and would never have expected it. There are a lot of amazing women on that list. And I, I, you know, I'm very thankful to Polestar and venues now for recognizing women in our industry, because there are a lot of women in our industry now and in all different capacities. I mean, ranging from agents to managers, to venues, to production, to ticketing. It just, so I'm grateful for that. I wasn't, wouldn't have expected it, but I'm grateful for it. And, um, humbled by it well it's well deserved i've known you for a long time and i'm very glad you're here and thanks for doing this thank you so much cynthia parsons thank you aunt taylor and the team at light thank you craig snyder and michael donaldson for being the greatest post-production partners a podcaster could ask for and as always thank you for listening to spotlight on get and share all of our past episodes Write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. If you like what we're up to here, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Join us again next week, and in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.